Good to see everyone out this evening. I hope and pray that you've had a good day thus far. And I hope you got a, maybe a nap this afternoon, or some rest, because uh, we may be here for a little while tonight. But I'm sure you won't mind since we'll be studying God's Word together. It's good to see uh, everyone. Uh, before I get into the message, uh, the study of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, I want to uh, thank Cindy for her efforts. She's going to be helping me uh, with this as far as, uh, as you've noticed on the whiteboard, the artwork. That's not uh, my work. You can tell that right off the bat. Uh, some have asked me if I drew that, and I would love to have said yes. But to be honest, I must say no. You've seen my chicken scratch. So she does a very good job. There will be a lot of these um, visions and dreams and things that we will uh, put on the whiteboard for you uh, with her help she'll be doing that part and uh, also she's made some paper copies for you if you're taking notes uh, you can punch holes in this put it in a notebook that's what I've done and then we'll fill in some uh, dates and things like that so you'll have a visual uh, that will kind of help us hopefully to understand uh, what we find in the book of Daniel also I can't take credit for any of this work really uh, I don't have anything that's original with me, and so, but I will let you know a lot of my uh, studies have been from uh, brother, the late Brother Rex Turner Sr., who uh, wrote a book on uh, the commentary on the book of Daniel. He also uh, was very well known during his lifetime as being a scholar uh, in the prophets, and so he is one of the best in the brotherhood. Uh, I studied behind him with his books, also his class notes that he had in the classes that he taught. Also, I had Brother Curtis Cates was my uh, teacher in the uh, subject of the intertestament period, and as Brother Cates does, he goes all the way back to at least the Assyrian uh, Empire, and then he would come all the way up till he finally got to the intertestament period, that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And so he gave me a real good study of the book of Daniel through that class, and then I had Brother Bobby Liddell uh, taught me in the uh, class on Daniel. And then, of course, I used uh, Reese's Chronological Bible for some dates and then some other sources. But I just want you to know that I use several different uh, sources as I study during the week to try to put all this material together for us as we study the book of Daniel together. Daniel chapter 2, we started a uh, week before last, and we, we noticed that in Daniel chapter 2, it's taking place in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar who was the Babylonian king and Nebuchadnezzar was sleeping and he dreamed some dreams and his spirit was troubled he was awakened and you remember he called all of his wise men before him and he he said to his wise men that I have dreamed a dream and I want you to tell me my dream and then give me the interpretation thereof and if you tell me my dream and the interpretation thereof, then I will bless you with riches and fame and different things. And you remember the uh, Chaldeans and the uh, sorcerers and the magicians and them, uh, they realized that they did not have the power to tell the king his dream. And so they said to the king, basically, uh, you've asked a hard thing of us, too much. No one would ask of any man uh, something like this because there's no man who can give you your dream. And then, of course, the king became very angry, and he said, Look, you give, me, you give me the dream and the interpretation thereof, or else I'm going to cut you to pieces, and I'm going to make your houses a dunghill. Well, 
Of course, they couldn't give him the dream, and he also realized that if he could have given the dream, he said the dream had gone from him, but if he could have, he said, well, you'll just, uh, you'll come up with something. You'll make up an interpretation. And so, no, you tell me the dream, and you give me the interpretation of my dream, and then, of course, he would know that the interpretation was true and accurate if they could give the dream, but they couldn't. And so he sends out Arioch, his, his butcher man, so to speak, the, uh, the head guy over the executioners, to take and get all these wise men of Babylon and to slay them. Well, when word gets to Daniel that something's going on, he asked Arioch what's happening, and of course, uh, Arioch explains to him what's going on. Evidently, Daniel wasn't there when the king brought those wise men before him, uh, nor were his three companions. And so, he, Daniel goes before the king, the Bible says, and asks for some time, and he says, you know, God will give me your dream and the interpretation thereof. And so Daniel goes back to his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and he tells them what's going on. And so they, they go to God and they petition him. They pray to him that he will give them uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and also in the interpretation thereof uh, so that they will not be killed with the other wise men. And, of course, he also asked for the lives of the other wise men to be spared. And so that's what is going on. Daniel goes uh, during the night, in the night vision. God gives Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives him the interpretation of that dream. And so uh, we'll take up with verse 31, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Verse 31, the Bible says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. That word means awesome. It was, it was magnificent. It was a sight to see. This image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part clay. And so... Daniel is now telling him what the dream is. In the next verse, he's going he's to tell him that he saw a stone that was taken out of a mountain, cut out of a mountain without hands. And of course, that stone hits that image on the feet. So this, the dream that he dreamed, what he wanted to know, looked something similar to this. He saw this huge, magnificent image. And that image had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. It had belly and thighs of brass, thighs of brass. The legs were of iron. And of course the feet were iron and clay. And then there was a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He saw this huge image that was made out of different types of metals. This little stone was cut out of this huge this mountain without hands. The small stone, as we'll see in the next few verses, will roll and hit this image on the feet, and when it does, the image will collapse. Now that's the dream. 
the wise men could not give Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Since they could not give the dream, they certainly could not give the interpretation. But Daniel did. Now in verse 34 of Daniel 2, the Bible says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image on his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So that's the dream. The dream, just, uh, he continues, the king saw, what he saw was the dream of a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands. It hits the image on the feet, the image falls, uh, it just shatters, it breaks to pieces, it's like dust, it's like the chaff of the wheat. Uh, when they would winnow the wheat, they would blow the wheat, the wheat would fall down into the sheet where the chaff would just blow off to the side onto the floor and then they would sweep the chaff up which was good for nothing and then they would throw that in the fire and they would burn it so uh, the crushed image was blown away by the wind to be no more but the stone became a huge mountain that filled the entire world also notice that Daniel said we will tell the interpretation. You notice that? We will tell the interpretation. He modestly included his three friends. He obviously wanted them to get some of the favor of the king. After all, they were also involved in asking God to give them the dream and the interpretation thereof. Daniel chapter 2 verse 17 and 18, which mentions where David, uh, not David, but Daniel went to his house and there he met with his three friends and he told them to petition God so that they would have the dream. And so he doesn't forget his, his friends. He includes them in when he says, we will tell the interpretation. Now, verse 37 of Daniel 2, it says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over all them. Thou art this head of gold. Before Daniel gives the meaning of the dream to the king, he first honors him. O king. Thou art a king of kings. Can you imagine that? In the position that he was in, the things that had happened to him, he had all rights to be angry and upset and to uh, be disobedient or rebellious somewhat towards the king, but he was not like that at all. He had respect for the king because of the king's high position of authority. It's like Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, when he said, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. Respect that position, respect that, that office. So Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest and most successful 
of all the Babylonian kings. Daniel also made sure that God received the glory that was due him. He made it known to the king that God had made him a king of kings by giving him the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory that he had at that time. He ruled over the world. He, he ruled over the world was not be, his rule over the world was not because of himself, but rather it was because of God. That was God doing that. That was God's will. Remember what Daniel said about God in his prayer? In Daniel chapter 2, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but in verse 21, he makes a point that's very important, and we need to keep this in mind even in our present day, our present time. As he prayed to God, and he said this about God, and he changes the times and the seasons, he removeth kings, and he setteth up kings. Don't you ever think God's not in control? There's never been a time when God has just turned the reins over to man and said, man, you take it, you do what you want to, how you want to, when you want to, and you do whatever. No, God has never done that. God has always been in control. He's always put kings in high places. He's always been the one that would take them down uh, from high places when the time comes. And so if you'll notice Daniel, he, he, as you look in the first, just the first few chapters, we see about God. Remember, the main thing of this book is superior God, superior king, and superior kingdom. God's superior king, and his kingdom is superior to all others. And so God is behind the scene. He's working through his providence. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand uh, with part into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of gold. God gave the king of Judah into the hands of the Babylonian king. God was behind all of that. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, Now God has brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Who did that? Daniel? No, God. God brought him into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Notice, this is all about what God did. In verse, chapter 1, verse 17 of Daniel, As for these four children, God, notice, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You see God behind the scene? You see what God's doing? God's at work. God's not asleep. He's not on vacation. He's not dead. He never has been. He never will be. God is behind all that's taking place. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 23, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hath given me, Daniel says, wisdom and might, and hath made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. You remember Daniel was right up front. I don't know why I want to keep calling him David tonight, but Daniel was right up front with the king and with everyone else and said, look, no man has the power of himself to do this, but we have a God that does have the power. In Daniel 2, verse 29, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he... 
that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. You see, Daniel continues to give God the credit, God the praise, God the glory, God the recognition. He's the one that's going to reveal this to you. Not me, but God. Without God, we can't tell you what this dream is. We're no different than anyone else. And in Daniel 2, verse 37, he said, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. So again, he's going back saying, Look, God has done this. God has given this. God has made this known to you. God, God, God. He was not like... Oh, Herod in Acts chapter 12, who did not give God the glory when he made the speech, and they said, oh, this is the voice of a God and not a man, and he was killed for that reason. But you see just the opposite when it comes to Daniel. He wanted God to receive the glory and the praise and the recognition that was due him. Now, in verse 38, the latter part, he starts the interpretation, and he says... Thou art this head of gold. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Here is the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the next two verses, it is made clear that this dream is about several kingdoms. In order to understand the meaning of this dream, there must be a reference point. If just one of these kingdoms is identified, then the others can be figured out historically. You can go back and study history. If you know where the first one is or the last one is or one in the middle, you, can, you have something to work from. You see, there are a lot of people in our world even today that say, well, this represents the United States. This represents Russia and this represents China. They do that all the way through the book of Daniel. But you don't treat the Bible that way. You've got to let the Bible interpret itself. And so now we have a reference point. Daniel states that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. We know where to start. Gold is very valuable, is a very valuable and precious metal that is superior to all others. Since the dream is about kingdoms, Daniel is really saying that the Babylonian kingdom that is represented by Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. So when you see that head of gold, think of the Babylonian kingdom, the Babylonian uh, empire. That's what he's talking about. The Babylonians ruled the world beginning about the time uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Some say 606 B.C., some say 605 B.C. We're going to go with 605, but it's right in that area. 606, 605, somewhere in there is when the Babylonians are considered to have begun their universal reign, their, their world empire. Now, Jehoiakim and had been paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar for about three years. Now, Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, remember. And uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. And then Jehoiakim gets this foolish idea to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that doesn't work out so good for him because when he does, guess what happens? In 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 2, the Bible says, And the Lord, there's the Lord again. He's behind it. The Lord sent against him, that's uh, the King Jehoiakim, the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of Syrians and bands of Moabites and bands of children of Ammon 
and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. So he rebels. When he rebels, the Lord sends all these bands of all these different nationalities against him and against Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar came upon Jerusalem and he besieged it. And then he carried Jehoiakim away in fetters. That would be in chains. We notice that in Daniel chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and also verse 2, that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came upon Jerusalem and seized it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Notice, you see that again? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands uh, of old Nebuchadnezzar. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 6, the Bible says, Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. And so that's what happened to Jehoiakim uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came upon Jerusalem. Uh, this was the beginning of Judah's 70-year Babylonian captivity as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 the Bible says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. In Daniel chapter, two, chapter 9, verse 2, the Bible says, In the first year of the reign of Daniel, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in desolation uh, in the desolation of Jerusalem and so they would be in captivity they'd be in bondage to the Babylonians for a period of 70 years and so we're reading about the beginning of that Jeremiah also had prophesied that after the 70 years then God would punish the Babylonians. Jeremiah 25, 12. Jeremiah 25, 12. It was not uncommon for God to raise up a nation of people to punish his people and then turn around and punish the people that he used to punish his people. In Jeremiah 25, verse 12, And it came to pass when 70 years, and it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolation. Well, it's starting to fall in line with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, isn't it? Now, in verse 39 of Daniel chapter 2, the Bible says, And after thee shall arise, Daniel's given this interpretation of the dream, and after thee, Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. The last king of the Babylonian kingdom was, the, the last kings were Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. Belshazzar reigned, his reign was co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. 
so they they reign they rule together Nabonidus enjoyed exploring and restoring ancient temples he brought back to Babylon many of the images of ancient deities from other cities this displeased his people and especially the priest of Marduk remember that was the Babylonian main their main God well his priests naturally wouldn't like that when Daniel interpreted the writing on the wall for Belshazzar part of the interpretation was that the kingdom of Babylon was going to fall to the Medes and the Persians you remember when he saw the writing on the wall the part of a man's hand we'll study that when we get to chapter 5 Perez uh, it meant as he gave the interpretation it meant the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians so in 536 BC Belshazzar was killed and Darius Ugbaru there's two Dariuses this is Darius Ugbaru the Mede became king under Cyrus the Persian we'll study about that in Daniel chapter 5 verse 30 and 31 and in the night in that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain and Darius the uh, Median uh, took the kingdom being about threescore and two years old that's Ugbaru evidently Cyrus had put him in charge of Babylon as king of the city until he himself could assume sovereign rule in less than a month however he was killed in battle and Darius Gubaru what's some names Gubaru succeeded him under Cyrus over 150 years earlier Isaiah had prophesied that God would use a king by the name of Cyrus and he even named him Isaiah 45 verse 1 thus said the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus then he talked about how that he would use him and even to the point of during his reign uh, the Jews would be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild uh, the walls and, and the temple and all and so uh, that was 150 years before this man was ever even born in 535 BC Cyrus went into Babylon and pretty much as brother Kate said he went in and he just kind of mopped up he, he finished the job he he finished taking care of Babylon the kingdom and so that's why we're going to go with 535 is when uh, Babylon fell and the Medes and the Persians took over uh, and th- this is how it happened so easily it is said that it was the angry priest of Marduk the old false god that made it possible for Cyrus to easily enter into the city they made a way for him to be able to go in and to finish conquering uh, Babylon so the Mede the Medo-Persian kingdom was powerful 
and great, but just as silver is inferior to gold, so the Medo-Persian Empire was inferior to the Babylonian Empire. So, the first kingdom in the dream, represented by the head of gold, is the Babylonian kingdom. The second kingdom, represented by the arms and chest of silver, was the Medo-Persian. But the third, there was also the third kingdom. Now, it was represented by the belly and the, and the thighs of brass. Philip. There was a man named Philip. He was the king of Macedonia. He began to reign about 359 B.C. He eventually built the strongest army in the world. Philip began his preparation to invade Persia when he was assassinated at his daughter's wedding in 30, 336 B.C. 336 B.C. After his death, Philip's son, Alexander the Great, became king. However, before that, Philip, his father, before his death and all that happened, he had already realized the brilliance and the talent of his son. And so he sent Alexander at the age of 13 to learn at the feet of the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Many of you have probably heard of Aristotle. He stayed there, he studied with him until he was 17 years old. But when he was only 16 years old, his father entrusted him with the government of Thrace and of Macedonia. That tells you a little bit about the greatness of Alexander the Great at a very early age. By the time Alexander was 20 years old, he had fought and had become the master of Greece. He was and is known as a military genius. In 334 B.C., Alexander, who is the horn on the he-goat of Daniel chapter 8, he's that horn that we'll see when we get there. The he-goat is Greece, the Grecian Empire. Uh, and the Grecian, the he-goat defeated the ram. Remember that? Well, the ram represented Persia. But the horn on the he-goat is Alexander the Great. And so in Daniel chapter 8, beginning with verse 5, the Bible says, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That notable horn is Alexander the Great. You can go ahead and start getting ready. We're going to study a lot about these kingdoms as we study through the book of Daniel. Cindy's got a work cut out for her with all these he-goats and these rams and these diverse beasts with all these horns and eyes and heads. We're going to see how she does with it. And he came to the ram that had two horns which I had seen standing before the river and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler 
against him and smote the ram and break his two horn, uh, break his two horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him I would say stomped where I came from but stamped upon him and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand that's talking about Greece and Persia when they come together to battle so in 333 BC 333 BC Alexander defeated Syria and then he ruled the world some say 331 333 somewhere in that area I'm giving you approximate dates and in 323 BC at the young age of 33 years old he mysteriously died of natural causes Alexander the Great 33 years old but he had accomplished so much by that time in Daniel 8 verse 8 notice therefore the he-goat waxed very great and when he was strong the great horn was broken that means Alexander the Great died and from it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven and we'll talk about those four when we get there uh, who came in his place the four generals that took the place of Alexander the Great so the third kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that was represented by the belly and the thighs of brass was the Grecian kingdom that was great but as brass is inferior to silver and gold so this kingdom was inferior to the Medo-Persian and the Babylonian kingdoms now verse 40 Daniel 2 and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things and as iron that breaketh all things shall it break in pieces and bruise and whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron the kingdom shall be divided but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men for they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with clay so after Alexander the Great's after the death of Alexander the Great the Grecian Empire was eventually divided between four generals the land of Palestine went to Ptolemy of Egypt like you have the Pharaohs and Ptolemies so the Ptolemy of Egypt and he brought thousands of Palestinian Jews to Egypt and gave them religious freedom and full citizenship rights in 204 BC the last strong Ptolemy died and then the Assyrian kings took over Palestine and ruled over them until 165 BC 
when Antiochus Epiphanes IV became king and he made things rough on the Jews. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, we're going to read about this, this very wicked king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. We'll read about him in Daniel 8, verse 9 through 12, also in Daniel 11, verse 21 through 35. In 168 B.C., he forced the Jews to sacrifice on heathen altars to heathen gods. You can imagine what that would do to a Jew. This led to Matthias Maccabee, or Maccabeus, however you want to, I see it spelled both ways, uh, a Jewish priest revolting and killing some Syrian officers, and this began what is known as the Maccabean period that began about 165 B.C., lasted approximately 100 years to about 36 B.C. Now, Matthias Maccabee had five sons that all fought for what was right. The Jews began to make alliance with Rome to help guarantee freedom, uh, religious freedom and political independence. Eventually, some of the Jews planned a revolt against Rome. So, when they did, Pompey besieged Jerusalem in 63 B.C. And Rome became the fourth world empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, represented by the iron legs and feet part iron and part clay. When Pompey attacked Jerusalem, it is said that 12,000 Jews lost their lives. The, uh, the feet of iron and clay meant that the kingdom would be strong like iron. The Roman kingdom had a lot of strength in it, but it would also be brittle like clay. The weakness of the Roman Empire was due to the Roman people mingling or intermarrying with the captives that had been dispersed throughout the Roman territory. And so those that were not true Romans would not be as loyal to the Caesars as the Romans would be. And therefore you would have a weakness in the Roman Empire. Would be also a good lesson for us when we study about Christians marrying Christians and having strong unions and, and the church being strong and being loyal to, to our king of all kings. And so these captives were not loyal to the Romans. So the Roman Empire was great, but just as iron and clay is inferior to brass and silver and gold, the Roman kingdom was inferior to the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and to the Grecian kingdom. But notice this. The Romans ruled the world from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now, Daniel 2.44. 
And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the, the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now we're getting to the important, the most important point in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the interpretation of the dream is the fact that God would set up his superior kingdom in the days of these kings. Which kings? The Roman kings. So God's superior kingdom would be set up in the days of the Roman kings. Also, God's kingdom was represented here by, you remember, the little stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. Remember this, the things that man does, he does with his hands. We work with our hands. We build with our hands. We cut things out with our hands. Man works with his hands, not God. You see, when it says cut out without hands, that means it's something that God did, not man. We see it many times in Scripture, like in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, where the Bible says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. You know which temple that was. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. Who did that? God. He wasn't talking about that old physical statue, uh, stat, uh, building uh, that was there in Jerusalem. Another passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Remember this, this is talking about baptism. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When one is buried with Christ in baptism, there's an operation that takes place that God does. In other words, when a person is immersed in water for the remission of sins, God performs an operation and he cuts that old man of sin away from him. That's why when you come out of the water, you come out a new creature in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. God does that. Man can't do that. He can't perform that circumcision. He can, conform, he can perform the fleshly circumcision, but he can't perform the spiritual circumcision. Only God can do that. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes and he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, talking about your body, we have a building of God, a house, notice this, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. God will make for us a new body that is prepared for heaven itself and not here on earth. And so we also see that the kingdom of God would be set that would be set up would be a spiritual kingdom. In other words, it would be made without hands. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus said, Neither say 
neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. What's that mean? It's spiritual. You remember the Jews were looking for earthly physical kingdom. They wanted to, uh, uh, they were thinking of a temple like uh, Solomon had, uh, Solomon built. But that's not what it was going to be about. The kingdom, the, the kingdom in Daniel's dream, the fifth kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. That's why Jesus said in John 18, verse 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And so it was not going to be a physical, earthly kingdom. The kingdom that Daniel, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, represented by that stone, was a spiritual kingdom. And so during the lifetime of Christ, the kingdom of God was close to being established. But it wasn't here on earth yet. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that you read about that is represented by that stone in the times of John the Baptist, it was near, it was close, but it wasn't established. Jesus preached the same message, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 10, verse 7, his disciples were told to go out and preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 10, verse 9, same thing. The kingdom of God is nigh unto you. And you remember in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So when Christ was here, the kingdom was not yet, but it wasn't far away. It was about to be established. And so the church of Christ is the spiritual kingdom of God. We see church and kingdom used interchangeably in Matthew chapter 16 by Jesus. In verse 18 and 19, when he said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to, uh, unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Church and kingdom, one and the same. The church of Christ is the spiritual kingdom of God that we read about in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. So God's superior kingdom was set up on the first Pentecost following the ascension of Jesus Christ in A.D. 33 or 33 A.D. That's why in Acts 2.47 we read, And the Lord added to the church, or the Lord added to the kingdom daily, such as should be saved. The Lord could not have been adding to the kingdom if the kingdom did not exist at that time. And so we know that what happened on the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You remember the Holy Spirit came on them as it had been promised, that uh, the Holy Spirit would come, and the Holy Spirit came, he'd give you power. And as Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Jesus said there'd be some standing here which shall not taste of death. Do you see the kingdom come with power? Power came on the day of Pentecost. The church came on the day of Pentecost. And uh, therefore the kingdom had its beginning on the day of Pentecost, the very kingdom that we read about in Daniel chapter 2. So... God's kingdom was established during the reign 
of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, who was a Roman king, he reigned from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. The church had its beginning in 33 A.D. And so just as we learn from uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream that the kingdom of God would be established in the days of the Roman kings, the Romans ruled from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. So God's superior kingdom broke in pieces and crushed the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman kingdoms, and they ceased to exist just as we find in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember in Daniel 2, verse 35, the dream, and the wind carried them away, all those kingdoms that fell, that no place was found for them. By 70 A.D., the gospel had been preached to the whole world. Also, I mentioned this, the little stone that represented God's superior kingdom, which is the church of Christ, it grew and it filled the whole world. That's what was said in the dream. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. By 70 A.D., the gospel had been preached to the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, of the kingdom had been preached to the whole known world. It had spread throughout the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, watch this, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. And so as the gospel is preached, the kingdom is spreading. This kingdom is growing. The kingdom is conquering. Even today, people are being added to that kingdom that we read about in Daniel chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul wrote and said, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. From the, the beginning on the day of Pentecost to this present day, people are still being translated, added to, transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and we notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that there is an earthly phase and there is a heavenly phase that awaits us. When he says in verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you, that is, if you be diligent and you don't uh, fall away, uh, and he says, ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, what you can do on your chart is you can write these kingdoms out. You can, give your, you can write down the interpretation. And so, the head of gold represented the Babylonians. kingdom began about 605 BC and went to 535 BC the breast 
and the arms of silver, Medo-Persian kingdom. Began about 535 B.C. and went to about 335 B.C. And then you have the legs of iron and the feet iron and clay. Oh, i got to get the uh, Grecian in here. That would be the belly and thighs of brass. Grecian kingdom. Three thirty-five BC to six two-three BC, and then the iron uh, thigh, the iron legs, and the iron and clay feet would be the Roman Roman kingdom, and it began about six two-three BC. And lasted till 476 AD. And then to stone. It's God's <coughs> eternal kingdom. Also known as the church. And it began in 33. AD and it is eternal. That's the dream. That's the interpretation of the dream. Also remember this. When this stone hit the feet, uh, the foot of that image, the image collapsed. This is what I've been waiting for. And that little stone grew into a mountain. And then it grew some more. And then it grew some more. And then it grew some more. And it filled the whole earth. That kingdom will stand forever. No kingdom will ever defeat that kingdom. God's a superior king. And he has a superior kingdom. Verse 46. Y'all thought I was done. Not yet. 46. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. And worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto, to Dan, unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods. He's starting to get the picture a little bit. And a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets. Seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. After Daniel had revealed the king's dream and given the interpretation of it, the king reacted by falling down before him and worshiping Daniel. At this point, many of the critics of Daniel will try to fault him for letting the king worship him, unlike Peter did when he went to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius fell down and Cornelius began to worship Peter. And you remember Peter said to Cornelius, Stand up, I myself am a man. Acts chapter 10, verse 25 and 26. The fact is, 
that Daniel's reaction is not recorded in Daniel chapter 2. It's not recorded for us in the Bible. We only have the king's reaction. We do know this much, that Daniel had already explained to the king that he did not have the power to make known to the king the secret, but that the God of heaven would. That was Daniel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It would have been totally, and I believe you will agree on this with me, totally against the high character of Daniel to have let the king worship him. He always gave God the glory, the praise, and the credit as we see in Daniel 2, verse 45. So he's constantly letting everyone know that the power is God and not of himself. And for the life of me, I cannot see him allowing this king to bow down and worship him uh, like that. But we don't, we don't have recorded for us exactly what Daniel did do. So even after all this, Nebuchadnezzar only recognized Daniel's God as a God of gods. He just really made room for him on his list of gods. You see, Nebuchadnezzar believed in many gods. So what's another god? Just add Daniel's God to his list of gods. The God of heaven proved once again that he is a superior God, superior king, by showing Nebuchadnezzar his dream and giving him the interpretation which all of his false gods were unable to do. 48, Daniel 2, 48. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And so we can say this about Nebuchadnezzar. He was a man of his word. And you remember he said up front, if you'll give me the dream and the interpretation of I'll bless you, he made that uh, known to all of his wise men, and none could except for Daniel. And, and he did exactly what he said he would do in Daniel 2, verse 6. In all of this, we see, I hope you see very clearly, the providence of God at work. God can do what way beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. May our faith always be in God. May we always realize, no matter how dark the days may be, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. And so we see the providence of God at work. He had used dreams to elevate his man Daniel to a high position for, notice this, God's own purpose, just like he had done with Joseph in Egypt close to a thousand years before this time. 
Genesis 41. And Daniel, being true to his character, 